Did you ever think in your wildest imagination that the events of October 7th would lead to an all-out culture war that would involve every sector of American intellectual and academic life? Did you ever think that the war that started in the south of Israel, the war that would move to Gaza, did you ever think that the war would come home? I mean, really, home. Here, to the United States, to the campuses of the most elite colleges in America, if not the world. Could you ever have imagined that the war in Gaza would also be waged in the quads, classrooms, and dormitories of American universities? Could you ever have imagined that three college presidents would wind up in the hot seats in front of Congress because of the outbreak of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic activity on their campuses and that they would have to face questions about whether that's acceptable. And did you ever think that the sentence, it depends on the context, would be an answer to the question about whether it's okay to call for violence against Jews and the Jewish state? Raise your hand if you ever thought that. <laughs> Me neither. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. We're going to talk today about anti-Semitism on the college campus, but you've got to know something here. This topic is broader, deeper, and it has far more context. <laughs> it's far older than we'd ever imagined. In fact, what's happened at Harvard and Yale and MIT and Columbia and other colleges is much bigger than what you're reading in the newspapers. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was gonna to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. So I invited one of my favorite Jewish writers and personalities to help us sort this out. This is a man whose work I followed for years because he's been writing about American religion for a quarter century. Now, from 2010 to 2016, he wrote my favorite column in the New York Times. That's the beliefs column about religion. And he created Unorthodox, which is the world's most popular podcast about Jewish life and culture with over 7 million downloads to date. Oh, God, thank you. You've now forced me to break the 10th commandment against coveting. I covet your downloads. <laughs> they're not mine anymore because I left the podcast, you know, almost a year ago. But they're they're good download numbers. Yeah. But I still listen to him. Mark Oppenheimer is the vice president of open learning at American Jewish University. He holds a PhD in religious studies from Yale. He's taught at Stanford, Wesley, NYU, Boston College, and Yale. He's written five books, including two of my favorites, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, he's one of the editors, and a book that I've read several times, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul 
of her neighborhood. So most recently, though, he hosted an eight-part podcast called Gate Crashers about the history of Jews and anti-Semitism at Ivy League schools. Mark, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. I'm sounding a little more nasal than usual, but my children are healthy. You know, that's what one wants. So I'm good doing interesting work and it's cold outside and I like the cold. So I'm in my element here in New England. I'm a son of New England. And so winter is my season. And uh, yeah, I have no complaints. All good. All good. Hey, listen, I totally geeked out on gate crashers. Rock on. Listen to every single episode. Can you just tell us what, what was it about? Yeah. Um, when I was at Tablet Studios, which is the podcast studio of Tablet Magazine, which I helped co-found eight years ago or so, we had done a podcast series about Charles Coughlin, the famous anti-Semitic radio priest who in the 1930s was one of America's leading fascists and Hitler enthusiasts. I wasn't involved in that. As I said, I founded the or helped co-found the production studio that did it, but a different team of my colleagues helped make that podcast. But we wanted to do a second series, a follow-up series about some episode of anti-Semitism in American history. Now, this is a couple years ago now that we conceived this idea. So it's well before October 7th, well before the Hamas attacks, well before Elise Stefanik's grilling of the college presidents uh, on national television. We just thought that even though anti-Semitism seemed to be at a relatively low ebb in American history, it's an important story and there are important untold aspects of that story. And we were thinking of a lot of different things. We thought maybe we'll do something on Hollywood on Mel Gibson. Maybe we'll do something on Tom Watson and pitchfork populism. We weren't really sure. And then one day I was walking down the street in New Haven, which I guess now is my hometown because I've lived here more than half my life, although I'm still a proud son of Springfield, Massachusetts. And I was on Chapel Street near the liquor store and the alternate universe comic book store, for those who know that corner. And I just thought, wait, what if we do a series on the history of anti-Semitism in the Ivy League at Yale, near whose campus I was standing, but at the other seven schools, I thought it's an interesting story. It fits snugly into eight discrete episodes because, of course, there are eight Ivy League schools. And also, I had a particular question I wanted to ask, which was this. Every Jew who goes to Yale or Harvard and probably also Princeton, Dartmouth, et cetera, et cetera, hears that at some point there was a quota of 10%. It's always 10%. That at some point in the history of the school, the admission office was charged with capping the number of Jews at 10%. And I had always thought that that was probably bogus. For one thing, how did they know who was Jewish and who wasn't? For another thing, uh, there was no paper trail as far as I knew. There was no smoking gun that said, you know, 10% no more. I had never heard of an admissions officer who came clean and said, my job was to make sure that in a freshman class of a thousand, it was a hundred Jews, no more, no less. It just, it, and it was too perfect. It had the ring of the, the too perfect urban legend. So I thought, let's get to the bottom of this. And thus began with my wonderful colleagues, the production of those eight episodes that became Gatecrashers. You know, I have to say something about the whole business of the Ivies. First of all, I'm a proud graduate of the State University of New York College at Purchase. Your podcast sent me back to Jerome Carobel's book, yeah. The Chosen. Yeah. 
The Hidden History of Admission and Exclusion at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And this is what I learned, just checking this out with you, that for much of their histories, the big three admitted students almost entirely on the basis of academic criteria. But when immigration policies start to change in the 1920s, that's when their policies change. And they came up with other incredibly subjective criteria that basically were about the creation of Anglo-Saxon gentlemen, and I stress gentlemen. In other words, they wanted to be able to admit, this is how Jerome Carabell writes this, the dull sons of major donors, and to exclude the brilliant but unpolished children of immigrants whose very presence prompted privileged young Anglo-Saxon men, the probable leaders and donors of the future, to seek their education elsewhere. So here's what I figured out. The whole notion of the WASP gentleman, the word WASP was most likely invented by E. Digby Boltzell at the University of Pennsylvania, who was describing himself. The WASP gentleman was created as a deliberate binary to Jews. Is this right? In other words, whatever the Jews are, we're not, and that's what the gentleman will be. Well, yeah, I'm not sure that's, I think it's, there's a rough truth in what you're saying. I'm not versed enough on the history of Protestant self-conception to know if the idea of the gentleman in American society arose in opposition to the unwashed immigrant. I think that's probably a slight oversimplification. And I read Carabao when, when we did this series a couple years ago, but, but haven't read him since. I, let me make a slight correction. It's not the case that students were admitted largely according to academic merit. Rather, if you go back into the 1800s, 1700s, early 1900s, these schools were pretty close to being open admission. That is to say, if you could afford a fairly nominal fee because they were much, much cheaper back then and you were inclined to go and you could pass a kind of pretty bare bones uh, entrance exam or admissions test or you'd go into a pretty good high school you were pretty well in. They were not elite places. They were finishing schools for, well, they were all different. A place like Columbia was really a finishing school for the the Protestant elite boys of Manhattan. And, you know, some of them were smart and some of them weren't. But the point was not intellectual achievement. They were not the most intellectual places, to the contrary. So what happened when large numbers of principally Jewish, but also Italian and Irish and other immigrants began to come to these shores and to our large cities. Uh, And you're talking about the massive immigration of 1880 to 1924, principally, was that for a lot of these boys, and a couple of the Ivy Leagues were co-ed, Cornell was, and Penn nominally wasn't, but really it was. It had a women's college within the university, but the classes were mixed going back a century at least. But at, at the other six schools, they were boys' schools. You know, so what you had was immigrant boys who saw these schools as engines of social mobility. That is to say, if you could go there and get a bachelor's degree, you could go to law school or dental school or medical school or whatever, and you could get it to the middle class. That was not the way the Protestant boys had seen it, because whether they went to college or not, they were presumed to have positions in their father's brokerage firms or, you know, industrial firms or whatever. So yes, the idea of excluding the Jews was partly to keep them more socially desirable for Protestant boys who wanted to, you know, row and do a cappella singing and so forth with each other. But it was also 
because of an interest in keeping the character of the schools somewhat anti-intellectual. They didn't want boys who they presumed were grinds or nerds or overly academically ambitious because that's not what the schools were for. So here's something really interesting that I don't know. Fun fact, that for at least a third of the years of American history, the White House has been occupied by a graduate of the Big Three. So in large measure, it was a system that trained people for the American power elite. I mean, yes and no. That number is, there's some truth to that, but that number is also skewed. First of all, a third, that surprises me that it's that high, but I haven't done the math. But So I take your word for it. But of course, you know, in the early years, a lot of these men were graduates of Harvard College because there weren't that many colleges. And if you were from Massachusetts, as a lot of our early leaders were in the 17 and 1800s, that was where you went. But again, that doesn't mean that they were extremely elitist institutions. They were seminaries. I mean, Harvard College at that point was still principally a training ground for Protestant ministers. And Yale and Princeton were training Protestant ministers. At a time in America when if you were lettered, if you'd read books, and particularly if you had Latin and Greek, you were in the 1% of the 1%. So they were very, very different. And then they grew into being more places for the industrial elite, the plutocrats, people with a lot of money. And then they became something else, an engine of social mobility. So there's you know, one of the, the informal mottos of Yale, you might have heard, is for God, for country, and for Yale. This is It's the last line of our alma mater of the school song. And you'll see it on felt banners that hang in, in dormitories, for God, for country, for Yale. And a recent joke is that in the first century, Yale was for God, then it was for country, now it's just for Yale, meaning for the enrichment of its own endowment and for its own prestige. That they went from being a place that was oriented toward God, i.e. the training of Protestant ministers, toward being a place that was oriented toward the country, i.e. the training of good citizens and, and potential leaders in the foreign service, in potential congresspeople, diplomats, et cetera, people who would serve in war, patriots, to being a place that's just oriented toward the self and kind of narcissism. I think that's a little crude, but there's a truth to that. So why are we so fascinated with the Ivy League? What's the what's the attraction here? You know, I have no idea, honestly. It's funny. I was on a podcast the other day where I was asked that exact question. I think I have to come up with a better answer. It's a little hard for me to say, partly because it's so close to home, not only because I grew up in New England, but my father went to Yale College. My grandfather went to Brown. My uncle went to Yale. It, I'm from a family where a lot of people have gone to Yale and other Ivy League schools, and that's you know a nifty sort of privilege. And there's a naivete for the people who are in it about how special it is. And you're reminded of it when other people come and look at your school and say, these are castles. This is amazing because they are physically very impressive places. But of course, when you live anywhere, you know you forget. You forget the privilege and the money that undergird it. I think obviously age has something to do with it. I think that in the United States where we lack a monarchy and a, a peerage and we don't have buildings that go back a thousand years, some of these are among our older buildings in a particularly historic part of the country, you know, in, in New England, not, not all of the Ivy Leagues in New England, but most of it is. And so it substitutes in some ways for the lure that in a country like England or France or Germany comes from old castles and Roman ruins. In a sense, it's the best we can do, uh, which is which ain't much. But you know, in England too, you look at tourists who 
take photographs of all the kids sitting on the lawn at Oxford and Cambridge, and they're just 18 and 19-year-olds studying. But to tourists, there's something very special about that. But I don't have a great purchase on the mindset of reverence for the elites. I mean, I'm not somebody who buys People magazine just because the royals are on the cover. I have other reasons for buying People magazine, but I'm not somebody who's interested in elites as elites, whether moneyed elites or hereditary elites or whatever. So I have some trouble coming up with a good explanation for this fixation. So let's jump ahead. Let's go to where we are today because there's a lot of curiosity, anger, and I think even confusion, Mark, about what's going on on college campuses, on the finest of our college campuses. The presidents who were made to account for what's going on, they were from three of the most prestigious schools in America. Is there a germ, a molecule of this older, polite, genteel anti-Semitism that we're still dealing with in these institutions? And let me just be clear, in academic life in general? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's a an accurate way to construe what's going on. Look, I think the three presidents who were testifying before Congress, when asked those questions, they gave answers that were not particularly artful and that didn't sound particularly humane, but which were in a legalistic sense correct, which is to say that no, students shouldn't be expelled for calling for the extirpation of Jews from the river to the sea because these are institutions that are founded broadly on a fairly purist notion of free speech. And that's a good thing. Now, there are complications to that, which is that these schools have not been very good about upholding free speech in the past five or 10 years. And so now to find their principles at this moment, at a time when Jews are trying to you know, ask for more, a greater sense of safety, security, and understanding struck many people as hypocritical and disingenuous. And of course, I don't know what's in the hearts of those college presidents, but, you know, they walked into a rhetorical trap set by, you know, a congresswoman and they didn't handle it particularly well. I'm impressed by the economist Tyler Cowen's analysis on his blog that in some ways they demonstrated the aptitudes that they've been selected for. If you look at the incentives for who becomes a college president now, it's people who might be very, very good at fundraising and perhaps some sort of management of a large multi-pronged organization, but aren't necessarily particularly good at talking like humans in a way that makes people understand. So I was pretty disenchanted by the answers they gave, pretty disappointed. I don't think they were firing offenses, nor do I think that if there's anti-Semitism in the hearts of any of the three of them, and I have no reason to believe there is, nor do I think that any anti-Semitism that may be in their hearts or their colleagues' hearts is the result of some sort of, as you put it, germ of 19-teens, genteel, anti-immigrant, judeopathy. I, I, I'm not sure how that would work. Right. Like I think it's a I think it's a very weird argument, to be perfectly honest. Like, explain to me how the anti-Semitism felt by the Columbia College Dean of Undergraduate Admissions, Henry something or other, circa 1919, hides out in the library book stacks at Low Library for a hundred years, only to sort of resurface 
in the hearts of contemporary faculty. Nobody could seriously believe that, right? <laughs> like, that's not a thing that actually happens according to the laws of physics, right? You could presumably establish some sort of you know, lineage whereby so-and-so taught so-and-so who taught so-and-so who taught so but it would have to be proven with actual examples and with actual evidence. And nobody seems to want to undertake that project. Look, I do believe that anti-Semitism is in the DNA of Western culture. But it's not in the DNA. It's in texts. It's in Christendom because of ways that the New Testament have been read. Right and inscribed as sacred. Exactly right. It's not hard to figure out. It's not sneaky. It's actually quite you know, evident and in the open. And I never, ever call anyone an anti-Semite. You know, years ago when I worked for the ADL, Abe Foxman said something very wise. He said to us, you know, don't call anyone an anti-Semite. That's like drawing a pistol. He said, refer to behaviors. You don't know what's going on in people's hearts. And I don't even think those behaviors were anti-Semitic. But People have said to me, as you just said, is there really free speech on campus? Because there are any number of ideas that are not outrageous that you cannot talk about without fear of cancellation. And I'm very concerned about cancellation. I think cancel culture is real. I think that many people are too blithe about it. Even so, it's often, not all the time, but it's often a social cancellation. It's often a sense of peer pressure, which is worrisome because if people feel that they're going to suffer a social death for expressing certain opinions rather than being celebrated for willingness to talk frankly or for their iconoclasm, that's a huge problem for campus culture. Nevertheless, these places are not inventing something when they say, look, we're basically about free speech. We give teachers tenure so that they can use free speech, whether they use it or not, and say interesting things with it. Who knows? But those college presidents couldn't really have said, yes, we should be expelling more of our students who say things that make people uncomfortable. They were right to say there are contextual questions about are you making a specific threat of violence to one person or are you saying something crass and stupid but broadly protected by the rules that our campuses have because they actually have to honor the specifics of their bylaws and campus speech codes and whatever those may be. So the idea that what you saw was manifest was some sort of anti-Semitism that you can trace back a century and that has persisted in the Ivy League unbroken is ludicrous in part because there was really no evidence of it in the 80s, 90s, you know, and aughts. <laughs> so did it hide out? Was it with the the church mouse, you know, under the eaves? Or, you know, how did that work? You know, I, I not only agree with you, but what's been bothering me, and I can't really put my finger on it, and it's something that I know that you've discussed with our mutual friend Yehuda Kurtzer at the Shalom Hartman Institute, the whole idea of safe spaces and this whole idea that has been described as the coddling of the American mind. Yehuda wisely distinguishes between harmful behavior, unproductive discomfort, and productive discomfort. And I think American Jews need to understand that they're going to have to figure out a way of, of dealing with this because we're not going to be able to pad the classrooms and guarantee that no one's ever going to feel uncomfortable about anything. Am I wrong here? No, you're right. And I think that any analysis of what's going on on college campuses has to begin with a certain level of specificity. My understanding, and I haven't visited and done the reporting, and I really like to proceed from reporting and firsthand 
information gathering, but I haven't in this case. So there's your disclaimer. My understanding is that Columbia College, the Undergraduate School of Columbia in New York City, has been a particularly difficult place to be, you know, an openly Jewish or openly Zionist or pro-Israel student for the past couple months. Decades, decades though. Well, except that it's also a place with one of the largest observant Jewish student population. Yeah, go figure, right. There are people who would say it's the best place to be Jewish, and they would say it's also a place that's always had some anti-Semitic faculty or a strong anti-Jewish, in some cases, anti-Zionist presence. So I, I think Columbia seems to be a unique hothouse in a way that Brown, for example, isn't. Cornell, of course, had that one horrible episode of someone making a very violent threat towards Jewish students who was then apprehended. But other than that one episode, my understanding is that things have been pretty serene. You know, Dartmouth has had a lot of very productive discussions from what I understand and has not had a lot of violent talk. I talked the other day at synagogue to somebody who had just spoken, so this is secondhand, with observant students at Yale, observant men who dress Jewish, right, who have who wear yarmulkes, have tzitzis, who said, I haven't felt any anti-Semitism. Now, that's a really remarkable thing because in the media narrative that some people are imbibing right now, those students, observant Jewish men dressed Jewishly, are being spit at, are being called all sorts of horrible anti-Jewish epithets. They think that it's literally they walk down the street and are subjected to hostility. And in fact, I heard what I take to be a reliable report that they haven't felt any hostility. Now, at Yale, there was a professor, Zarina Graywall, who said some incredibly, from what I understand, crude and anti-Semitic things in class. And one might have been a tweet as well. I mean, who has had some bad stuff attributed to her? And if it's all true, then I would want to talk to her about that and have some real concerns about about her teaching style and also her her public pronouncements. But again, that's one professor on a faculty of hundreds or a couple thousand. So I think we, before we even proceed to what you want to do, which is say to Jews, look, these classrooms aren't always going to feel like safe spaces, we have to recognize that probably the vast majority of classrooms feel pretty safe day in and day out as it is. And that's, you know, it's important to kind of hold that truth as we go on to talk about how to handle the smaller number of incidents of anti-Semitism, Judeopathy, bigotry, and so forth. You know, almost exactly 50 years ago, my gosh, it is 50 years ago. In my first published article, I wrote an essay about what I was experiencing on the college campus in the wake of the Yom Kippur War. And what I was hearing from my classmates and from faculty alike was sounding very similar to what was going on today. So let me ask you a question, a sociological question. It seems that anti-Zionism is cool. How did it become cool? Am I overstating it? No, I I think that it, look, Elite college campuses, by no means all college campuses, right? But elite residential private four-year colleges and some public ones are places where the student body is probably more ideologically left than at any time since the late 60s and early 70s, let's say the Vietnam era. And anti-Zionism has become an important part of leftist self-identity, seen as intersectional with support for Black Lives Matter, for support for, you know, LGBTQ uh, and trans rights, support for, you know, women's empowerment, especially in in the wake of the Me Too movement and the reporting around that. Anti-Zionism has come to be seen as one of the points of view that you can expect when you walk into certain rooms 
uh, to do left-wing activist or left-wing intellectual work. I think that's always been there. It's, it's come out of pan-Arabism. It's come out of a certain strain of Marxism. And of course, it's also come out of you know genuine grievances that people hold against the Israeli government and its behavior, sometimes inflated, sometimes overstated, sometimes deliberately distorted, and sometimes genuine. I think it's really important to distinguish between critique of Israeli policy, and by the way, the line forms on the left or on the right, frankly, to criticize what individual governments are doing and histories of bad policies. But it seems to me this is not about 67, it's about 48. It's about just the very negation of any necessity. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on here. Number one, you have the utter collapse of the humanities at American colleges and universities. So you have fewer and fewer students who have any idea what happened in 1948. I think if you walked into any sort of protest and counter-protest around Israel and Hamas and the war right now, it would be a minority of the pro-Israel students and a minority of the anti-Israel students who would be able to tell you what's important about 48, 67, and 73. It would be a minority who, after yelling from the river to the sea, would be able to tell you which river and which sea, right? And that's that has something to do with the, the dearth of humanities learning on these campuses. I take that to be a central problem. There's also a lot of propaganda that goes around this on both sides, of course, you know, on the anti-Zionist side, you have this notion of Israel as the like unique and total malefactor in the world, second to none, which is ludicrous. You know, coming from from Zionist or pro-Israel sides, you will also have people saying things like anti-Zionism is an attempt to deny one and only one people self-determination. But of course, there are hundreds of groups without self-determination in the world, right? The Basques don't have self-determination. <laughs> the Uyghurs in China don't have self-determination. I mean, But there's no ideological underpinning for the fact that they don't have self-determination. In fact, many of us would agree that they should have self-determination. Maybe so. It would be an extremely different world if every ethnic group got self-determination. For one thing, you'd have you know several dozens at least of many states within the United States that weren't just Indian reservations, but were places of true self-determination, were countries. And you would have minority peoples in, I mean, there's numerous minority groups in China. Think of India. How many countries would India be? How many hundreds of fair, countries would India fair be? Fair enough. So, I mean, nobody actually thinks who does the math. I mean, it's it's become a mantra. These people want to deny Jews and only Jews self-determination. No, I, they're probably fine denying self-determination to, you know, all the numerous Minority groups in India, in China, I don't think they're agitating for Maori self-determination in uh, New Zealand and Australia. That's not true. It's, these are really good points. Interestingly, yeah, everyone takes. I get it. Everyone on the pro-Israel side takes it as obviously true that they want self-determination for every group of the world. Except, no, they don't. Okay, that's really good. I like that. So these fights are so tendentious and so often done in bad faith, and it's because people are scared. And I understand that. I mean, I understand why why people have compassion for the immense suffering of Palestinians going back to before 1948. I understand also why many Jews feel that if they give an inch in talking about Palestinian self-determination or Israeli aggression, that they've undermined a national project that is utterly crucial to their children's future safety. I mean, people are scared. Hmm. Wow. We're going to talk about fear in a second. Just hold on, everyone. We'll be right back.
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're back. It's Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. With us is Mark Oppenheimer, one of my favorite people, who's already shaken and stirred me. So thanks, Mark. Anytime. Mark, fear. Let's talk about fear for a moment here, because we're going to move to something else in a few minutes here. Jewish students on the college campus, are they able to defend themselves intellectually? Has Jewish education kept up? Has it not kept up with the challenge? What's going on with Jewish identity here? I think that that's in some ways the wrong question, whether they're able to defend themselves intellectually. Most of us can't defend ourselves intellectually, nor are we interested in doing so. That is to say, you know, I'm against the death penalty and always have been. But if I were thrust into a debate with people who are passionately pro-death penalty and armed with statistics and arguments and philosophical papers and a lot of reading and had sharpened their points of view in a lot of debates amongst themselves and others, and they were calling me to the mat, I'd probably end up looking flat-footed and stupid and anyone scoring the debate as captured on YouTube or wherever would say that I'd lost because most of us don't live our lives as uh, potential debate participants. (laughs) So the idea that one of the things that Jewish students are supposed to be able to do, first of all, is be Zionists because some Jews won't be Zionists and that's okay, right? That's okay for people to believe what they want to believe. That's part of the glories of a free country. But insofar as many students are drawn for good and obvious reasons to Zionism, the idea that we should expect them to be able to argue for it well strikes me as a really um, a curious demand almost. I think most pro-choice students aren't really sophisticated at arguing pro-choice positions. I think most, let's say, neoconservative expansionist students are not well-versed enough in foreign policy at age 19 to defend their arguments against a passionate and educated peacenik or dove. I mean, that's not who we are. We're not, you know, homo argumentatists. I don't know. We're not arguing man. And I think that what people are talking about is there's a fear on the part of many Jewish parents that when their kids go to school with a kind of inchoate, vague, but warm love for Yiddishkeit, which includes for them Zionism, that then when confronted by people who have anger towards Zionism or denial of some of its claims, that they will then go through this weird existential process where they find themselves humiliated by the knowledge and sophistication of their opponents. And that humiliation, instead of prompting them to learn more will prompt them to reject their Judaism. That's a really interesting and complex and tangled fear, if if I'm describing it correctly. And it's possible that I'm not. I don't yet have a child in college, although I have a high school senior. So check in with me in a year. But in any event, my parenting experience so far leads me to think that this is the wrong way to approach this anxiety and that the right way to approach this anxiety is to create a home with a 
mindful and ebullient and exuberant love of Jewish stories and rituals and maybe theology and texts that the child will then love because childhood is magical and we love the things that were given by our parents. That strikes me as a better way to approach it than to think what eight bullet points can I give my child that they can use to defeat an anti-Zionist. Nice. I like this. Let's just shift gears. I want to go from the present trauma of October 7th to another trauma that you've written extensively about that also took place in October. This was October 2018. And I'm talking about the worst day of American Jewish history, which was the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. As I said, I I read your book several times. I have to tell you, I have long had an urban crush on Pittsburgh. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh. I was speaking and teaching there for several years. I want to just get into something sweet, even before we talk about the trauma. Can we talk about Squirrel Hill? Yes. As a neighborhood, as a shtetl. Can we end on something hopeful? Because I think what we're all looking for is meaning and community. And we we can talk about the, the horrific deaths that took place, the heroism, the rabbis, the communal leaders. And you also write about the relative age of the synagogue goers, the fact that in most American synagogues outside of orthodoxy, Shuls are lucky to get, this is your words, 10% of their members inside the building any given week. And Tree of Life often got fewer than 20 people on Shabbat, and those whom they got were mostly the old and the very old. In fact, yes, the, the ages of the people who died was part of the poignancy of this tragedy. But I don't want to talk about the tragedy. I want to end on something sweet and beautiful. Can we talk about Squirrel Hill and what that means for American Judaism. I, I don't think it's just a neighborhood. I think it's it's something else, isn't it? It's a very special neighborhood. It's the oldest substantively Jewish neighborhood in the country. It's been roughly 30% Jewish, give or take, for a century now. It was settled around World War One, and has had a substantial and diverse, internally diverse Jewish population ever since meaning it's not been an orthodox neighborhood or a reform neighborhood or conservative or secular. It's been all of the above. It's contiguous with a couple other neighborhoods, uh, Regent Square, Greenfield, that uh, shady side that together, if you look at them as the east end of Pittsburgh, have stayed substantively Jewish again for a century. And urban, Pittsburgh is a city where the Jewish population, although it has dispersed to the suburbs uh, to some extent, did not completely dissipate to the suburbs in the ways that it did in Detroit or Cleveland, for example. And it remains, when you say a shtetl, I think the the image is is apt. I think it remains a place that where the geography is tied to the spirituality. That is to say, if you walk around Squirrel Hill, you pass by shuls, but you also pass by the public library, the public high school, the Jewish day schools, the kosher butcher, a used bookstore, a Judaica bookstore, just the whole, you know, integrated fabric of civic and Jewish life. It's very American in that regard. It's never been majority Jewish, but it's been substantively Jewish. So they've always had to forge warm relations with Gentile neighbors, and they always have. My dad is from there. He's a fifth generation Pittsburgher and was the third generation to live in Squirrel Hill. But for me, the book project of writing Squirrel Hill was, you know, was a, a lesson in self-discovery because I hadn't grown up there. And so it was it was wonderful to go back and 
get to know that neighborhood and those people. It's one of the things that I have always found moving about Squirrel Hill is precisely what you said, which is until relatively recently, there was no urban flight from that people, when they became more prosperous, would simply trade up to a larger or perhaps more beautiful home in what is already a beautiful leafy neighborhood. Am I right about that? By and large. I mean, there's always been some flight because there it's America and people want three-car garages and swimming pools. And uh, there's not a lot of land for big houses in Squirrel Hill, but there has been less. And there's a story there. And it's a story that I tell in one of the chapters of my book. It was partly the result of intentional decisions to keep locating the Jewish institutions in Squirrel Hill, as opposed to moving the JCC, the Home for the Aged, Jewish Family Services, and so forth, the day schools to the suburbs, which is what happened in so many communities. New Haven, for example, where we had a beautiful JCC downtown. And then when they rebuilt, I don't know if it was in the 70s or 80s, they rebuilt out in the suburbs, only three miles away or four miles, not far. But the thinking was that's where Jewish life will be. It turned out they were wrong and Jewish life is now contracting in that suburb. And it would have made a lot more sense to leave the JCC in downtown New Haven. In Springfield, Massachusetts, where I'm from, the JCC is literally on the border of Springfield and the suburb Longmeadow, which uh, has more of a Jewish population now. So it has a foot kind of in both municipalities. But the answer that Pittsburgh came up to when the Jews said, where are, where are we based, was we are going to stay in Squirrel Hill. And they put a lot of money and a lot of hope behind that project, and it paid off. It's really interesting that what you're saying is in terms of Jewish urban and suburban planning, that the institutions do root the community more than we think they do. In other words, what you're saying is there is a deliberate decision to keep those institutions within a certain urban frame, and that shaped where people lived rather than the other way around. Yes. It worked in Pittsburgh, and I don't know that it would work everywhere. And I think that a lot of it had to do with other things that Pittsburgh got right. I think it had to do with the fact that Pittsburgh is a city of neighborhoods to which people are fairly loyal. I think it had to do with the fact that the suburbs aren't so appealing in Pittsburgh and the traffic into the city is so terrible. You know, but that's true in Boston as well. And there was still Jewish flight and white flight out to Newton and Brookline and, and now farther and farther away. So I think it worked in Pittsburgh. In general, I think urbanism is a Jewish concern and one we don't spend enough time with. I think that, you know, we're reaping what we sow, as you know, probably from your own travels in the rabbinate, uh, suburban congregations that were once thriving and once seen as perfectly situated are often the ones that are contracting at the highest rate right now. You know, there's, there seem to be a lot of congregations in this country that were built in wealthy suburbs post-war. They'd been urban, then they were built five, 10 miles out in a suburb. They had two or 3,000 families in the 60s and 70s, and now they're shrinking quickly. It's really interesting that you say this because in my new book, Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism, got to get that plug in there. Sure. I write about the contraction of synagogues, and it is my anecdotal sense, by the way, it's interesting that we do not have hard statistics on this. Yeah. For many reasons, that the synagogues that are growing tend to be urban synagogues in the largest Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. Suburban synagogues, especially post-war suburbs, are shrinking. And by the way, where I grew up on Long Island, in a very devastatingly quick rate. Yeah, because 
it's not that people don't want to live in the suburbs, but the suburbs are a really bad place to form thick Jewish life. Absolutely right. And they always were. And look, this is not accidental. I mean, there's such deep wisdom in Judaism. And whether you're Orthodox or not, uh, whether you want to walk on Shabbat or not, you still want to be close enough to people that when someone dies, you know, everyone can go out for a shiva call, that when there's a bris, people can make it, that people don't feel that they're putting their life on the line, driving on the freeway or driving 40 miles to, you know, get to a Shabbat dinner. And I'm thinking about this right now. You know, I have a good friend whose grandmother just died and he lives near me in Westville here in New Haven, which is a fairly Jewish neighborhood. And a lot of the people who are, who make it to the Shiva are people who live within half a mile. And that's just human nature. You know, Judaism was designed to be a, a religion of people hanging out together. We don't have a monastic tradition. We don't send people off into the desert to find wisdom. We say get together with, you know, with 10 other people and read some stuff and pray some stuff. And if three of you are together, you should learn Torah. And right, isn't that it? If there's three people together, Torah should be discussed. Well, there's no question about it. I mean, suburbs were not crafted, Mark, to create community. They were crafted to create atomistic lives. No, they were crafted for cars. And cars. Absolutely right. And look, I mean, that's the thing rabbis should be preaching on the most, is living near other Jews. And I don't know that that message has gotten out to the extent that it should. But by the way, some rabbis don't take the advice. You know, I know rabbis who live 20 miles from their congregation, which to me is is borderline malpractice, I think. But you know what's interesting about this conversation, which we will have to end soon, but but this has just been spectacular for me because it's great to engage with a great mind. It takes a level of intentionality, doesn't it, on the part of rabbis and communal leaders, not only to craft the conversation, but also to do some really elegant and smart urban planning and to recreate a shtetl. Well, and it's the work of many decades. And and to some extent, you need luck. And Pittsburgh had a lot of luck as well as a lot of intentionality. You know, to be fair, you know, some of the rabbi, when I'm thinking of one rabbi who lives, again, 20 miles from his congregation, it also has to do with two career couples. It has to do with the exigencies of the real estate market. The United States is poorly constructed to keep families and communities together. And in some ways, the government incentivized the undermining of those communities uh, by investing in highways rather than you know, light rail and trolleys and things that that promote those communities. So there's a lot of damage to be undone, but there are a lot of wonderful humans, Jews and other humans doing the work. And we are all doing the work. We want very much to recreate community and meaning in our lives. Really special thanks once again to our friend, Mark Oppenheimer, who has taught us today about the history of the Ivies, about the current academic situation that faces Jews on the college campus. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I invite you to follow my regular column, Martini Judaism, on religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Now listen to me. Listen carefully. Martini Judaism is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. You would help us immensely. Download our podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. Many thanks. We'll see you again soon.